Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. (laughs) I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. We all have a money story, a way in which we grew up thinking about money, either consciously or unconsciously. And our money story has power over the choices we make and the choices we don't make with our money. Dr. Daniel Crosby, a psychologist and behavioral finance expert, says that behavioral changes around money are really tough because we all think our money story is normal. That's all we've ever known. So then the real question is, how do we create change with our money? So we all think we're normal. We all think our money story and the way that our family approached wealth and the accumulation of wealth or or the, the hatred of wealth in some cases... That's all we know. You know, that's all we know. That that comprises the entirety of our sort of wealth schema, our wealth story. So it's enormously impactful and it's impactful in ways that we don't fully realize. Millennial Money with Shauna Compton Game. It will expand your brain. Talking to Daniel was so enlightening for me. I know the power of the money story. I've seen it played out over the last 13 years when I was a practicing financial planner. And I would watch people get stuck in money patterns over and over and over again because 
of the money story they were telling themselves and weren't consciously aware of. I could share with you a million different stories where this was true, but I'm going to leave it to Daniel to shed some light on this topic because he plays with this all day long. Daniel is a New York Times best-selling author, and his latest book, The Behavioral Investor, is a comprehensive look at neurology, physiology, and psychology of sound financial decision-making. This stuff is fascinating, so let's get to it. I'm I'm really fascinated by the work you do and really about like, our brains and the power that they have over our money choices. I think the ones we make and the ones maybe we don't know we're making. So I'd love to just start out with like how powerful is the brain when it comes to our money choices? So it's extremely powerful. And I think you led with one of the most important points and one of the least considered points, which is the majority of what goes on in our brain happens beneath our consciousness. And so, you know, once you understand this, you begin to understand why some powerful concepts elsewhere in investing in personal finance, like automation, like working with a professional uh, become so important. Uh, because we necessarily don't have great access to our brains and the way that they're doing what they do. Um, so, you know, in the same way a fish doesn't know that it's wet, we, right. uh, you know, we brain led creatures aren't always privy to what's going on inside, but it's enormously powerful and, and somewhat dark and mysterious. So it's kind of a tricky combo. Yeah. And I, I'm curious, like, why do you think we don't talk about this enough or this isn't a component of what it means to build wealth? Well, I I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one is because it's just underappreciated. I think we Mm. have for a very long time believed in this rational world uh, in which finance and investing were sort of um, strictly analytical, mathematical, quantitative pursuits. Um, that is certainly not the case, but we proceeded as though it was the case for many hundreds of years. And, you know, behavioral finance or my field of study arose as a reaction to econometric models that were built around human beings as being these sort of perfect, perfectly rational robots, you know, which we of course are not. Uh, but then the second reason is, uh, we don't talk about it because the fixes are tricky. Like, you know, um, It's not as simple as, uh, you know, just turning a dial or doing this or that. Humans aren't mechanistic. Humans aren't robotic. And so the the tricks for fixing behavior are often complicated and unsexy and, you know, hard. (laughs) And all that, uh, you know, all that kind of leads us to leave it aside in favor of other stuff, I think, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely unsexy, but so important. And you talked about like the the sort of unconscious nature around money and our brains and and why we make certain decisions. What do you think the impact of our money story from childhood, those messages that we that we get from our parents, the people around us that we're not even really aware of? How do those play into our decision making around money and investing and whether we're risky or conservative? Yeah. So what's wild is that you consider there's like 7 billion people on the earth today. There's about double that many people who have ever lived. So there's, you know, 14 or 15 billion people who have ever lived. And yet your experience of what it's like to be human is, you know, 
totally exists within, you know, but between your ears and within the confines of the walls of the home you grew up in. So we all think we're normal. We all think our money story and the way that our family approached wealth and the accumulation of wealth or, or the, the hatred of wealth in some cases, that's all we know. You know, that's all we know that that comprises the entirety of our sort of wealth schema, our wealth story. So it's enormously impactful and it's impactful in ways that we don't fully realize. And I think for a lot of people, their first uh, the, the first time their money story comes into conflict or they even begin to question that it's not the only money story around is when they get married or get in a serious relationship and have to start, you know, talking about money with a significant other. Uh, and you realize like, wow, the way that I did it or the way that my family did it and the way that other people in the world do it are, are very, very different. And so, yeah, you make a you make a great point that it comprises the entirety of how we think about money if we're not out there reading and exposing ourselves to other viewpoints. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never thought about that, that that really is kind of like your first moment of realizing consciously that somebody else might do it differently, whether you agree with it or not. <laughs> yeah. And often you don't agree with it, you know, whether or not, you know, we we aren't uh, able to sort of rationally appraise the pros and cons of our partner's approach, because all we know is it's different and different is bad. Right. So, yeah, if we're not careful, uh, we can be very close minded about these things. Is there ways to change those behavior patterns that maybe you've unconsciously walked into from childhood? Is there a way, I guess, even a way to have an awareness about what you're bringing with you that may be then impacting your your money, your investing, the way you think about money? Yeah, I I talk about behavior change with this stuff in in a three part approach. So it's you know it bears saying I, I touched on this earlier. But, you know, behavior change is enormously, enormously difficult. Like, I think it's like 7% of people reach their New Year's resolutions, right? Which is sort of oh the, my ulti gosh. the ultimate, <laughs> you know, attempt at a behavior change. Only 7% of us follow through with these. And, you know, you would see similarly dismal stats in terms of people saving and investing behavior. So the three-part process for me around changing behavior, they, they all start with ease so you can remember them. So the first is education. So you have to encounter people from other walks of life. You have to read books that expose you to sort of best practices in saving and investing and, and planning. Uh, so that's the first one is you educate your mind about, you know, the variety of different ways that you could go about this and the different sort of best practices and the fundamental building blocks of building a, a money life. Uh, the second piece is environment, which is the right, you know, call it the right portfolio. So uh, more important than than having a portfolio that maximizes wealth over time is having a portfolio that you can live with. You know, we mm. talk about anxiety adjusted returns. You need the portfolio that's going to get you the most return possible uh, per hour of sleep at night, uh, not yeah. the one that's going to you know not yeah. the one that's going to give you the best portfolio. So you need the right environment, and then the third thing you need is the right encouragement. So we find that again and again, even people who know what they ought to be doing, even people who are in a, in a sensible portfolio, um, often without that ongoing support and coaching, um, they're just going to falter because these brain, you know, these, these, these patterns from childhood, these unconscious biases that we've talked about, 
These are going to override the best laid plans uh, you have. And so that encouragement could take a number of forms, right? It might be an ongoing uh, literacy campaign, right? It might be ongoing yeah, reading. Yeah. It might be listening to a podcast like yours. Um, it might be working with a financial advisor, whatever that looks like for you, you do need some kind of ongoing support. So you need the right education, the right environment and the right encouragement on an ongoing basis. Mm, I like that. The three E's. The and three you, E's. you talk about this balance that we, I think all of us walk this tightrope a little bit, especially when it comes to investing. There's kind of that fear, panic, stress out there, certainly with the media, if you will, about investing. And then the knowing the need to invest, to grow money over just sitting in your bank account. I think we all inherently like have these polar opposites, no matter how much money we have to invest or to grow. And how can we then Knowing that our brains are kind of in these two opposing forces, how can we manage ourselves to push past some of that fear that might exist, either from maybe our parents lost money in 2008, 2009, or we just we see all these this news coverage and yet we know we need to do this? Is there a way we can we can literally like trick our brain into this? Yeah, the, the trick your brain into it is actually like a really good way to think about it. So in my in my latest book, The Behavioral Investor, I talk about these sort of four primary behavioral tendencies of investors. And, and most people, when they read this, they go, oh, you know, it's things like emotionality and ego and overconfidence. And they go, oh, you know, these are bad things. But in, in many cases, there's a way that we can take what is ostensibly a bad thing and, and turn it on its head. So if you take the the human example, the, the the human tendency to be sort of status quo prone and lazy, right? Like once yeah. we, well, what are we, you talking about? I know, not you, <laughs> not you, right? Not you, not me, but other people. So you can take that and actually lock it into your benefit, right? So instead of being lazy and doing nothing, you can make one decision one time to make a monthly contribution to invest it, you know, along ABC plan, and you can automate that. And you can even auto escalate that you can say, you know, and every time, you know, my, my paycheck gets bigger, my, my withdrawals get bigger. And then you can just forget about it because mm, we right. have, we have this, uh, we, we have less willpower than we think, you know, all the, the human family loves to think that we're going to make the right decision in the face of, you know, the temptation or the danger or the scary thing. But all of the research shows that that's, that's really not the case. Uh, very often. And so the, a much more powerful thing to do is to just lock in a good, uh, good behavior and then go, you know, go do something else, go live your life, go do more interesting things than, than worry about, you know, the money that you and I have to talk about all the time. Um, but, but yeah, use that human tendency to be lazy and status quo prone and, and, and lock it in for your benefit. And, you know, the same thing can be done with emotionality, like the same emotionality that leads you to make bad decisions if you turn it on its head, it can sort of be rocket fuel to get you to make good decisions. I found in my research um, evidence that people who looked at a picture of their children um, before making an investment decision were uh, saved more than two times as much as people in a control group. Um, because really, yeah, cool, right? Because it was like, okay, here's here's why I'm doing this. Like, you know, here's ah. why I'm going to take this risk. Here's why I'm going to. 
um, you know, uh, do this scary thing is because I care. There's a yes that's that's bigger than the no of the fear. And so, um, yeah, like tying your personal life to investing is another way to take what seems like a biased sort of sloppy human tendency and make it work for your benefit. So there is a way to, to, to trick your brain, I think, on multiple fronts. I love that you just gave that example because I talk often about money and money goals in the way that you have to visualize it first and not just some image in your head, but a picture or words or something that you can connect to that will motivate you to to stay on task. And so I think it's so cool that that those results show that doing that uh, for investing does actually make a difference. Yeah, you've been you've been giving good advice all along and you just didn't know the scientific name for it. So the the scientific name for that tendency is mental accounting. So it mm. it says that we spend and save and budget money differently depending on how we've sort of accounted for it mentally. So to give sort of a dramatic example of this, there's actually research that shows that um drug dealers and other gang members and people who are involved in sort of criminal behavior, uh, they'll sometimes have like a, a normal job and then, you know, have a side hustle of selling drugs or whatever. And in many of these cases, they would give money to their church from their normal job, but they wouldn't tithe on the money that they made from selling drugs. So it's like, even just huh. like where the money comes from, what you name it, how you've allotted it depends on how you spend it and save it and invest it. So, you know, tie those, tie those saving and investing decisions back to the, your values, tie them back to the things that are meaningful in your life. And you're going to be much better off, have a much easier time. weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited and it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ETM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash ETM. Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. 
Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. They release updates every two weeks and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied, or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know, it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. (laughs) I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash etm. Go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and use code etm for 20% off. Talking about money is hard. You know this already. All over the world, people are taught to never talk about money, politics, sex, or religion in polite company. On 50 Fires, a podcast about money and meeting from executive producers Chip and Joanna Gaines, 
host and financial conversationalist Carl Richards will remove money from that list by having frank, funny, and often difficult conversations about money, the kind we're all told not to have, with guests from all walks of life. In each episode, Carl will invite a new guest to answer the question, what does money mean to you? Their answers will reveal much more than their attitudes about money, spanning revelations about identity, community, faith, family, and the true meaning of wealth. Tune in to hear deep conversations about money and the meaning it holds in our lives. You can find 50 Fires on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's Tuesday. That means it's time for another Ask Shauna, and this one comes from Lakin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Hi, Shauna. I'm so grateful that I found your podcast. It's truly helped me shape the way I view my financial future. I have a question about my 401k, and I'm fairly new to your community, so I apologize if this has already been answered. I recently sat down with our 401k enrollment rep and was told that the best option for me as a young professional would be to invest my funds into an aggressive stock. I invest 6% into this stock with each paycheck, 3% from me and the other 3% from my company matches. My question is, is an aggressive stock a smart move? To my understanding, it will fluctuate depending on the market, which doesn't necessarily sound safe to me. Do you agree that this is a good choice for young professionals like myself? I spoke with a few other younger employees in my office, and they chose the same plan. I'm not sure if that's a smart move. Thank you in advance. This is a great question, Lakin, and welcome to the podcast, to the community. We're so excited to have you. No question is a bad question, and I'm happy to answer any question a million times over. So first, I'm just going to say, whoa, (laughs) whoa, whoa. First off, again, I don't know a lot of the behind the scene details except what you've just told me here, but no one should pick your investment choices for you. Only you can decide how much risk you're willing to take on. Again, there's not a lot of info that I have in this question, but whether it's an aggressive stock or fund, I'm not quite sure. I'm curious about what this aggressive stock, quote unquote, is made up of. If it's a tech, if it's a small cap, if it's international, if it's a general S&P 500 index fund. So there's a lot of details I don't know, but let me give you some things to think about. I want you to think about the amount of risk that you really feel comfy with, that you can sleep with, rest your head on a pillow at night, and also think about how would you feel if the stock market lost 20%, 30%, 40% of value and your stock went down accordingly. Now, of course, if you're young enough, you can weather some of these storms and come out on the right side. And that's what would have happened if you would have invested in 2009 until now. Of course, you would have been so happy that you actually stayed in the market. But I want you to figure out how risky you want to be. And there are a ton of online risk tolerance questionnaires that can help you. But just because some of your work colleagues might have chosen to invest in this fund doesn't necessarily mean that's the right one for you. You might not feel comfortable with that much risk. And so someone automatically telling you that this is what you should invest in, I feel really nervous about that. I mean, I understand that they might be guiding you, but you also have to say, okay, I understand that, but let me actually think about this. Let me look behind the scenes. Let me figure out if this is right for me. One thing I want you to look at also are the fees in these different funds that are being offered to you. 
it will be listed as something called an expense ratio. And the general consensus is to stick with funds with an expense ratio of 1% or less. So the closer to zero, the better. But uh, but I want you again to first line up what you're choosing based off your risk tolerance. Then I want you to look at the expense ratio. What are the fees in these particular funds or fund that you choose? Another question is, when would you need this money? So I understand that you're young, you have a long time horizon to invest, and typically the sentiment is the longer time horizon you have, the riskier you can be. But that doesn't mean that you have to be if you don't feel comfortable with that. And I'd also suggest some diversification, not just invest in one fund or one stock, but look for a couple of different funds in different sectors to try and like mitigate risk and really diversify your investment. So that's another thing I want you to think about is look at all of your choices and see if you could pick a couple of different choices in different sectors so that you have that ultimate diversification. So Lakin, I hope that's helped you. Again, I just want to emphasize that just because someone is suggesting this to you or your colleagues are suggesting that they might have invested in this particular fund doesn't mean that it has to work for you. So figure out the risk tolerance, figure out how risky you want to be, figure out what you're comfortable with. That's the most important piece of this. Then you figure out which stalker funds align with that risk tolerance. If you have an Ask Shauna question, just it's easy. Head on over to the link in the show notes or over to our website, mmoneypodcast.com, and you'll find the Ask Shauna spot right on the homepage. We'll be tackling an Ask Shauna question every Tuesday, and I want to help you answer your questions, even if you want me to list you as anonymous. Such an interesting example. I wonder if that was, of course, I'll never know, but I wonder if that was a like conscious decision that they were making or that was just an unconscious something happening in their brain where they didn't feel right tithing that that other money fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And they, they did this. This happened with uh, the trade-off between the Bush and Obama administrations too. Um, if you'll remember, you know, so the, the great financial crisis sort of unfolded at the end of the Bush presidency and into the beginning of the Obama presidency uh, and, you know, well into the Obama presidency. But they, they talked about, uh, they were all doing all these things to stimulate buying and both presidents uh, gave gave money back to the public, but um, Bush and his administration called it a rebate, and the Obama administration worked with behavioral scientists who told them to call it a bonus uh, because pe- ah yes pe- yes because you take a rebate and you like save it and you take a bonus and you buy a new couch with it. So um, mm. even what you call your money has powerful implications that people just don't realize. Wow, that's fascinating. So what what led you into behavioral finance, behavioral investing? Did you have an interest like early on on why people make certain money decisions and the science behind it all? Yeah, so my dad is a 
financial advisor. So I grew up, um, you know, from from a very, very young age talking about investing at the table, you know, playing stock market uh, games with my dad, like watching tickers in the paper. I mean, watching Wall Street (laughs) week every night with my dad, you know. um, So, yeah, I grew up in sort of fertile soil for all of this. But then I went um, I went my own way in college and I got my my bachelor's and my PhD are both in uh, clinical psychology. So I went to school to be a, a therapist and then through a series of uh, <clears throat> fortunate events, found myself, you know, <laughs> yeah, found yeah. myself in this field because um, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't loving clinical work. I wanted to think deeply about why people uh, did the things that they did, but I wanted something that was a little less heavy than working with, um, uh, clinical populations. And so this has been uh, an awesome fit for me. Well, and I think what's so cool and interesting, what I love about it is because money is this taboo topic and yet it touches every aspect of our lives. So there is inherently this tug of war that happens for all of us, whether we consciously are aware of it or not. And I just think the underpinning of it is just so fascinating. Like you were just describing about the, the Bush Obamas. I mean, I would never think about the, those two things. Essentially, they're the same thing. They're giving money back to people, but just even how you frame things. And so I could see how like on a personal standpoint, how that that framing is so important of you making your own money decisions or even just how you feel about your money, whether you feel like you have a lot or you feel like you have a little. Yeah. The, what's the what's the Chris Rock joke? Uh, Chris Rock has a joke that I'm going to screw up, but he says, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates would jump out a window if he woke up and had Oprah's money, right? So it's like, you know, yeah. Oprah, Oprah, one of the richest, most successful people in the world, uh, yet she's got, you know, 1% of what Bill Gates has. So, you know, it is all how you frame it. And it's important because ideas like wealth and poverty really exist on a on a continuum and they really exist on a relative basis. I mean, if you look at the average person in America today compared to the, you know, a, a wealthy person 200 years ago, you know, it's like they've got a house with, you know, they got a house with a better heater, a better air conditioner. They got a phone. They got all kinds of things. Uh, and yet I'm not saying that to minimize uh, what any, anyone in poverty goes through because these things really are relative, like in a, in a very real way. Um, money itself is a psychological construct. Like, you know, the little green pieces of paper we work for all day long are only valuable because we all agree they're valuable. And the same is true with things like wealth and poverty. Uh, they're really socially defined. They're really relatively defined. Uh, and that's what makes my little part of the world so such an interesting uh, place to study. Yeah. And probably because people keep uh, tripping themselves up too. So... <laughs> There's probably, you know, lots to dive into. So thinking about that, then thinking about our our brains and all of that, should we be listening to what our minds are telling us about money? Uh, No, very seldom. Like, I mean, uh, I in my previous book, The Laws of Wealth, I coined this phrase, um, Wall Street Bizarro World, which just talks about how systematically uh, things that work in other parts of our lives don't work in investing. So Um, you think about something like, uh, what are you going to be doing 10 minutes from now? You know, 10 minutes from now, I could tell you with, you know, 
relative certainty exactly what's going to be happening. If you say, right. you know, Daniel, what are you going to be doing 10 years from now? I give you no clue. Um, you know, the, the exact opposite is true of the market. If you say, you know, where will the market be 10 minutes from now? It's like n- literally no clue. It's all noise. But I could tell you with a pretty good degree of certainty where it will be 10 years from now. So time is weird mm. uh, in investing. Um, action is weird. You know, in most endeavors, if you do more, you get more. You know, if you if you lift more weights, you get more strong. You read more books, you get smarter. Um, but uh, Meyer Statman, another behavioral economist, did a study in 19 different countries, and he found that the more active people were in checking and managing their accounts, the worse they did. And so, again, investing is one of those areas where you put all this time and effort and and focus into it and it just screws you up. So almost everything that feels sensible in investing is actually paradoxically crazy. And so it's very it's very difficult. And and intuition is a very, very poor guide uh, most of the time when it comes to money. So how do you if you're just a normal person, how do you find your way through those paradoxes? Because a lot of people will say, well, you have to be, you have to be active with your investments. You have, you, you, you have to constantly be watching. And, and there's that, as you said, that counterintuitive balance of the studies show that the, the less active you are, maybe the better you are. So how do you, as just like the normal person, find your way through this to know what you should or shouldn't do? Yeah, well, I, I'll bring it back to those three E's again, right? So first of all, you need enough education. Like even if you want to give your money to a robo advisor or you want to work with a financial, you know, human financial advisor, you still need to know enough about the world of finance and the world of investing to even be able to choose a good advisor or to, you know, mm, to, to yeah. make sure that your money is being managed sensibly. Like, you know, TV is littered with stories of people who just didn't know enough to know whether or not they were getting a raw deal. So that education is important. Even if you hate this stuff and you want to wash your hands of it, you need to, (laughs) which is, you know, probably not true of anyone listening to this podcast, but you need to at least know enough to be dangerous, right? Enough to be able to pick a good professional to take it off your hands. Uh, And then you need that right portfolio and that, and that right ongoing encouragement. And the good news is, like the, the the good news is I think money is necessary, but not sufficient to live like a happy, well-adjusted life. And so for most people, uh, it really comes down to uh, go get a job, <laughs> take a little money out <laughs> each month, you know, automatically withdraw that money, spread it around in cheap, well-diversified funds and leave it alone. Like, and you know, the, the greatest investment you can make is in yourself because the biggest driver of your wealth is going to be your, your income. And so if you just do that and, you know, you can work with someone or not, depending on what, on what you choose. But if you, if you do those things, you're going to be all right. So you can really get by with relatively little. And in fact, doing relatively little is one of the best things that you can do. That is definitely a big aha. Wow. Well, I'm curious also in your new book, Behavioral Investor, are there any other like big overarching things that really pop out that would be would be interesting to talk about that are maybe like aha discoveries that we might not be aware of? 
Oh, there's there's a lot of really cool stuff. I think people who read The Behavioral Investor will – this is why I loved writing it and I've, I've loved seeing people's responses to reading it. I think it'll improve you as a human. Like it'll give you a different understanding mm. as a as a spouse or a partner, um, as a as a person. It'll just give you a deeper understanding of your mind, your body, the society you you walk around in. Because I talk about you know the sociological, the psychological, the physiological impediments to good investment decision making. So even if you know if if you're more interested in psychology and self improvement than say investing, I think there's a lot here. And that to me, again, this is funny to say on, on your podcast and given what I do, but, but to me, finance isn't all that interesting. Like, I mean, you know, the, the money part of this, you know, the money part of this is not the most interesting part. It's using the, the lessons of behavioral finance, using the market as a backdrop to measure human behavior and to look in the mirror and say, yeah, you know, learn truths about humanity. That's the, that's the fun part to me. Mm, yeah, I I definitely resonate with that. It's it's one of probably the listeners are just sick and tired of having me say this over and over again. But I've just always said that from working 15 years in the financial industry, what I've seen, no matter of income, status, what somebody has or doesn't have, when they can make changes in the way they think, act and feel about money from like a real conscious standpoint, they can make so many changes with their finances. I've seen it time and time again, where people are just stuck for years and years, and then they just suddenly change something in their mind or a pattern or think about something differently. And then it all changes. And it's like this miraculous moment. And they're looking at me like I've just, you know, gifted them the world. I'm like, no, no, you did it though. Like this is, there's so much of this that is mental that if we just spent the time and understood that, like the changes that we could all make would just, they would literally blow my mind. Yeah, totally, totally agree. It's a vehicle for making uh, it's a scoreboard for making other, even more important life changes. That's exactly the way to think about it, I think. Wow, yeah. Well, we have talked about so much, but I would love it, Daniel, if you could leave the listeners with like one powerful takeaway on how they should think about their brains, maybe the subconscious or even conscious patterns that they have around money, like something that they can, an actionable tip they could put in force today that might help them on their, on their own money journey. So one of the, one of the least popular things uh, to, to come out of, of my research for the behavioral investor and for the laws of wealth was this idea. I have a chapter called you're not special. And so, you know, <laughs> it, and people hate hearing that. And I think, you know, in the in the US in particular, and I'm, you know, I just turned 40. So I'm sort of the generation that I'm firmly right in the middle of that gold star generation of, you know, people who grew up being told that they were all that by teachers and parents. And um Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah. So being a great investor requires you to own from the very outset, very humbly that you're not smarter, that you're not luckier, that you're not better than anyone else. And it it takes owning that humility. It takes sort of chastening the mind for you to make good decisions. And so learning to, you know, to, to humble myself, um, you know, because I've had an 
nice career and I went to a lot of school and I've got some nice accolades in these things, but, but markets will humble you and they will teach you very, very quickly that you're not all that, that you, that you don't, uh, you know, that you don't know everything. And then if you try and know everything, you're going to, you're going to cost yourself a lot of money. So I just think that the world would be a, a better place if everyone were a little kinder, gentler, humbler. And I think the process of reading books like The Behavioral Investor and, and more broadly, trying to become a great investor is a great path to a better life, a better world, and a more humble world. So if you work on one thing this week, uh, work on understanding that if you want to be great, if you want to do something special in this life, the first step to being special is to realizing that you're not that special. I love Daniel's tip that we're not that special. I mean, we are special, but we're not that special when it comes to our money mistakes. I often tell my friends that all of their money mistakes are not unique. In fact, if you took a poll of probably 75, 80% of the people around you right now, they have experienced the exact same mistake, the big stuff, the little stuff. So I can't stress enough how important it is to just take a couple of listens to this episode and really let it sink in. Think about your own money story and the impact your brain is having on your money decisions. If you want to hear more from Daniel, tune into his podcast, Standard Deviations, and be sure to pick up a copy of his latest book, The Behavioral Investor, anywhere books are sold. Thanks again for checking out this episode. It means so much to me. If you love what you heard, share it with some friends and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you back here in a few days for a brand spanking new episode.